Guten Tag, Bienvenue, good morning. It's Will Bradley, the host of the Adventurous Gentleman Podcast. And before we kick things off, I just want to talk about the great partners this show has. They're fantastic people, fantastic companies. Highly recommend checking them out if you haven't already. First off, we've got Maven. Fantastic Optics just came out with a scope you can use on your rifles. They've also made spotting scopes and binoculars. If you use the coupon code NBHGIFT at checkout and they will send you some free Maven swag, head on over to mavenbuilt.com, cruise through their website, and you can check out. They have some really, really fantastic swag, actually, and when they send it out, they always send good stuff. So use that code, get yourself some free stuff with your order. Next off, we've got Mountain Ops, fantastic supplements, another great company, great guys over there, the Harbersons, Trevor Farns, and Matt Davis. All there at Mountain Ops, great people. Had I think we've had everyone but Trevor now on the show, so we'll have to get him soon. But if you order some of their supplements, you can use the coupon code TAG10 at checkout to get yourself 10% off any of your supplements you order. Although I'm not sure the Cameron Haynes lines applies to that code. So somebody, if you check it out and try that, let me know. Uh, moving on from there, Alp and Real Codes, just use the coupon code gentlemen and you can save yourself 15 percent off on a purchase of a reel or fishing line and i believe their reels will be back in stock the blue stone reel will be back in stock july they said and i think they're dropping a new reel sometime over the summer so keep an eye on that beautiful reels really really solid products uh also last one outdoor vitals use the coupon code adventurous on your purchase of $50 or more, and you will get yourself a free inflatable pillow. Now, I'm not 100% sure, but I might have mixed up those last two coupon codes. I'm pretty sure I'm right, but just in case, if one doesn't work, try the other. And uh, again, let me know. You can be my beta testers for it. Uh, other than that, today's show is a really, really fun one. I had James Ploss on. James has served in the Army traveled extensively and we had him on because not only did he go to high school with me one of the reasons i got into crossfit super great guy in general but he is planning to row with two other guys the atlantic ocean so that means he will be leaving north america and ending up in england should be about a 45 day journey and so we had him on to talk about that and his prep and planning and how he's going to be going about this. So stay tuned because he's got lots of great insight and it's a really fun conversation. I hope you all enjoy. So now on to the show. If you are ready to take the hard road, the road less traveled, the path in life where the journey is more important than the destination, then you are in the right place. Prepare to live with vigor. This is the Adventurous Gentleman Podcast. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Adventurous Gentleman Podcast. I'm your host, Will Bradley, and today I have a super awesome special guest. He is a longtime friend from back in the day of Holland Patton High School, fellow Golden Knight, fellow CrossFitter and adventurer. Welcome to the show, James Ploss. Thanks, Will. 
you are super welcome, dude. And the reason James is on the show today, he contacted me a little while back and was like, hey, I've got this really cool thing going on. Would it be awesome if I came in and talked about it? And he told me what it was, and I was like, yes, that is exactly what this show is for. And what James is doing, and correct me if I'm wrong, you are going to row from North America to England. That's right, yeah. Uh, Two friends of mine and I are going to row from New York to London on an ocean rower uh, next summer, 2019, May. It's going to take about 45 days, and we're going to cross the Atlantic Ocean on a rowboat. That's that's a pretty tall task right there. I don't know a lot of people lining up to row the Atlantic. No, I don't think there's uh I don't think there's a wait. So, what's what's the lead up to row the Atlantic because I mean, I do rowing, but I don't feel like I'm prepared to go row the Atlantic. What's it like going from zero to having this just become an idea? Can you walk us through that process of point A to point B? So, interestingly, enough there's other people that want to row the ocean with me and one of the the guys that wants to row the ocean with me i met on my last trip to africa and we were sitting on the coast of africa and totally separately of each other came up with this idea and we're like looking out at the ocean and we're like man i'd really like to cross the ocean in a rowboat i'd I'd really like to row across the ocean something that i've wanted to do and thought about it and then he's like oh my god I'd really like to cross the, like, that's kind of the inception. That's where it started. That's kind of how we, you know, got together on this idea. And since then, we have taken steps to actually put this plan into action. And the first step was to turn a canoe into a two-man skull and row the Cape Fear River in North Carolina. And that's kind of just to prove that we were, like, able to tolerate each other, one, and then two... (laughs) be able to actually, you know, commit to this endurance rowing, which, you know, the Cape Fear, we rowed 120, 112 miles, and that's roughly 5% of what the ocean row will be. So that was kind of our proof that we were willing to do it and kind of tolerate that pain a little bit. And then, you know, I think after that experience and just learning about it before, the majority of ocean rowing and these endurance events, whether it's ocean rowing or, you know, endurance running, whatever it is, it's, I think 75% of it's mental. I think if you're physically fit enough to do it for a day or two days, if you have the mental fortitude, you can kind of push through that, um, push through that challenge and, and overcome those things. So, so let's talk about the boat you guys built, because I've been following along with your journey and, uh, looking at the pictures and everything. And when I saw this boat, I honestly thought to myself, dear Lord, please don't let this thing fall apart on them and die out there in the river. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that that's understandable. It was built out of um, stud two-by-sixes, two-by-twos, and uh, and some Thompson's water seal on top just to, just to keep the water out. Uh, and where did you find plans to build this boat? Did you come so, up with them yourself or...? My friend that is going to do this this ocean row with me happens to be a mechanical engineer. And it's helpful. It, very helpful. Yeah, I'm kind of the, the brawn. He's the brains behind this operation. That's all right. Someone's um, got to be the big meat. So, <laughs> so, you know, I was like, hey, I have this, uh, I have this 16 and a half foot canoe. Let's, let's just build a sliding seat for it and, you know, throw some oars on it and try to, try to row it. 
and you know we came up with the idea to row the cave of fear uh and we kind of just came up with the plans and kind of winged it we went to lowe's we bought all of the materials um and we were like all right this this is what we think will work and it actually you know there was some trial and error but you know it, it held up really well we had no mechanical failure on the river um we built the sliding seat out of that was probably the most technical part out of um skateboard wheels skateboard uh, wheel bearings and then just sort of pieced together axles and put a seat on top of it to me the attribute of winging it is probably one of the number one or two most important attributes you could have if you are to be an adventurous gentleman like if you cannot look at your goal and say you know what there's a lot of stuff between me and here but if I don't start and just start duct taping some shit together and figure it out, I'm not going to get to that goal. You know, being able to see that goal and take those steps are probably the, the most important intrinsic quality you could have. I agree with that. I think along with that, apt- adaptability is, is crucial to any of these things, right? Any, anything you're going to do in life, if you're adaptable and you can, you can kind of adapt to the challenges and overcome them without panicking or freaking out that's that's a good quality to have and it's necessary if you're going to embark on anything like this and how did the cape fear row go did it pull off smooth as butter or were there some hiccups (laughs) i wouldn't say it was smooth as butter i there were some issues there were some hiccups um not with our boat not with the apparatus (laughs) surprisingly (laughs) it was the cape fear that that threw the curveballs uh so where where we started we tried to start below the fall line Um, in a place called Irwin, North Carolina. And we tried to get past all the rapids so that we could just row flat water because had we, you know, flipped this boat, it would have been, it would have been a trip ender for sure. And uh, we did run into some rapids and we had to get out and walk the canoe along a little bit in the water before we got to the flat water of the Cape Fear. So that was a pretty time consuming process and kind of set us back a little bit from the beginning. And then, you know, once we got, into the flat water we had we had to kind of learn to work together on the rower and learn to pull the oars and and it was our first time actually rowing on the water other than the tests that we had done with the boat before and you know there was a learning curve um and and once we figured that out we were able to work together and and that first day went really well after the first couple hours then we got to the portages and this canoe is heavy it's an 80 pound canoe to begin with and then we put probably 150 pounds of lumber in it and oars and and uh, equipment so trying to pull that canoe out of the water on these steep muddy banks was really a challenge and then you know the half mile endurance you know pull that we had to do around the locks on the cape fear because there's there's three three locks uh on this and for those of you who are not familiar with locks that's to help change the level of the water so you can get from say a higher part to a lower or lower to a higher right and the locks on the cape fear only operate during weekdays between the hours of 9 a.m and 5 p.m not too uh, handy for you not too handy it didn't work out for us their hours didn't work out so we had to portage around and there's a canoe portage but it's not designed for a boat that weighs you know 350 pounds and has you know these wide oar locks on it so we had to improvise and adapt a little bit to get around some of the the obstacles there, which you know we did, and we we persevered and we kept going. But it was it was definitely a challenge. And on top of the the portage challenges and the working together, there was also the heat 
Uh, it was the hottest weekend so far this year in North Carolina. It was over 100 degrees all three days that we were on the water. Not a lot of shade on the water. Not a lot of shade on the water. And with your feet elevated on the footrests, you have you know sunburn on the front of your legs and you know sunscreen necessary. But when you're sweating and you know, it only works for so long. Only works for so long. So that was also a challenge. But so now that you've rode Cape Fear successfully in your makeshift rowboat, what are the next steps moving forward? Uh, the next steps are sort of moving forward towards purchasing an actual boat to row across the Atlantic Ocean in. And uh, what uh, is there a ballpark figure on what these things cost? Between twenty and thirty thousand oh, dollars. Just just a cool twenty or thirty k. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. And our plan is to partner with charities and to get sponsorship to actually do this row and uh, reach out to these companies and say, hey, you know, look, we're, we're going to row the ocean. We want to do it for this cause. I'm thinking maybe some you know, veterans organizations, maybe some, um, some clean ocean uh, people, maybe some clean water for you know, people in Africa, people who dig wells or some of these different organizations that, that people tie back to you personally would, as well. Yeah, something that I care about, um, causes that we're passionate about as, you know. So let's talk about this a little. Let's, uh, the backstory, if you will, your origin story, if you were a comic book superhero or villain. And we'll go from, what was it, 2004 you graduated? I graduated from Holland Patton in 2005. Five. I was close. Yeah, I was super fine. close. So a few fine. few years after me. A couple years. And uh, so here we go. Fresh-faced, bright-eyed, young James Ploss, graduating old HP alma mater in the middle of upstate New York. And what did you do after you graduated? I went directly into the United States Army. I've heard of them before. You've heard of that organization. A small organization, Yeah, a small correct. organization. <laughs> little, little known. <laughs> yeah. So I, I joined the Army and uh, went to uh, Fort Leonard Wood for basic training and then you know, for, finished my Army career. Stayed in the Army for, for eight years. Um, so eight years in the Army, did you get... Uh, what's what's the word I'm looking I for? I did a couple deployments. Deployments, to, that's to Iraq. Right. Thank yeah, you. Yeah. Uh, in, Another lovely vacation spot, part of this yeah. small organization. Yeah, I, yeah, lovely vacation spot. And what mm -hmm. did you do in this organization? Uh, I was an MP, so military police. Um, I was in the 82nd, stationed at Fort Bragg, deployed in 2006 to 2007, and then 2008 to 2009. Now, let me ask you this: How do you think that stint of your life? has shaped you to who you are today? That's a really good question. So I think that the ability to kind of work with people in Iraq, the Iraqi people mainly kind of gave me a passion for travel and learning, gaining these new experiences by working with other cultures and, and kind of learning the things that I can from them. And that doesn't necessarily relate to ocean rowing, but more to the, the conservation work that I'd like to do uh, after I graduate from college. So, yeah, like working with other people and kind of helping communities in other countries gain the understanding of how to do things without telling them how to do things, if that makes sense. Kind of like a guide, if you will. A guide would maybe be a good... <laughs> good little... Yeah. You know, like a hunting guide to... Sure. Yeah. You know, you've got your goal. I'm going to help you, but you're going to have to do it. <laughs> yes. I think that's important in, in anything. 
All right. So you get out of the army, and where does James go from here? Uh, James goes to university. I like, I like it. Third Sounds person, good in the third, like person. third person. James, James goes, goes to, to university. university. So I started, uh, I come from a conservation background. My family has you know strong feelings about conservation. And throughout my time in the Army, I kind of thought, man, I really want to do something that I want to do. I want to do something that I'm passionate about. And, you know, conservation, ecology, biology, those things all really you know, I care about them. I'm passionate about the environment, passionate about conservation. So I went to school for uh, ecology and conservation biology at uh, NC State in Raleigh, North Carolina. And yeah, I'm there now. Um, one more year to like graduate with that degree. And then, yeah. And then, then any... Then I row the ocean first. Uh, <laughs> that's after graduation is going to be an ocean row. And then uh, probably a master's degree or something like that unless the the right job comes along if i'm able to work in a national park somewhere doing ecology or conservation biology i would i would definitely jump on that jump on that yeah so after leaving the army did you continue to travel or was that the end of the cruise shall we say i did i continued to travel uh my first as as soon as i left the army that same year, I went to uh, I went to Uganda for a couple weeks and more tropical spots. <laughs> more tropical spots, and then you know every summer since then, I've been able I've been super lucky to have the opportunity to travel to different places. Um, and they got better. They got better. <laughs> um, then the following year, I, I went to Australia, which was really awesome, awesome experience. Got to do some conservation volunteering in Australia and travel around. Uh, Southeast Australia, Sydney, Melbourne, and uh, the the parts around there, and then the following year, Ecuador, Costa Rica, Namibia, yeah, <laughs> Namibia. That sounds exotic. What was that like? Uh, it was great. I uh, actually it was a study abroad opportunity at NC State. We were studying the way that you can <laughs> the way that you can use drones to monitor wildlife. So it's the fir- it was the first year of the study, and we were sort of the pilot. <laughs> no pun intended, the pilot crew to go out there and see how high you could fly these drones uh, over the wildlife without provoking a response so that future studies could use drones and not, you know, sort of affect the wildlife or not have these negative effects. Because one of the benefits of using the drones is that, you know, less invasive, yeah, that less invasive way of studying wildlife. And it was this collaborative study with engineering students from NC State and, uh, conservation biology students or uh, vet students, not vet students, but um, animal studies people. And what did you find doing that kind of study? So what we did every day was to go out and look for, you know, herds of wildlife. So whether it was giraffes or zebras or oryx or whatever, we would go find oryx. oryx. Like the guy, green guys Dems with the big buck. tusks coming out there. No, no. I'm just joking. <laughs> uh, <laughs> little hunting humor. Yeah. Gotcha. S- so what, sorry to interrupt so you, what did fly, you find? We'd fly over them and, and basically we were trying to find the lowest we could fly without provoking a response. And that was somewhere between two to three feet, two to three feet. Yeah. We would, <laughs> we would hover directly over them. They no. never noticed. No, we were, we were respectful of the animals. We didn't go below, um, we didn't go below 10 meters ever. And, uh, usually there was a response within, 
within that range between 10 and 30 meters above the animals. You fly one right into a gems buck, they tend to notice. They do. They don't like that. Yeah. So fortunately for us and the the wildlife there, we didn't crash into any animals. We did crash several drones. Namibia is rough on, on rough drones. on drones, rough on everything. And actually. what's the uh, drone recovery protocol like? Just well, excuse, excuse me, just, guys, out here to get my drone. Don't you just find go me pick animals. it up. You just go pick it up. When the drone crashes, they tend to kind of scatter. So that that's helpful. Know, that I guess that went in the went in the paper. <laughs> Uh, and you've obviously have seen a lot of wildlife did you have a favorite animal when you were out there did i have a favorite animal while i was there i think so we flew over the arid savannah ungulates so all of the antelope species but we were also near you know we got to see lions and we got to see you know we got to see lions and cheetahs and uh being able to interact with the cheetahs was was really cool but my favorite um one of the antelopes was probably the the oryx i would have to say um also got to also got to try most of the game meat and i would have to say that oryx was the tastiest as well so for anyone who is against say americans going over to hunt because they don't believe you can eat these animals you would i would uh, disagree i think that the animals are eaten often there i mean that's a common let's, let's talk about that a this a little thing bit cause... for for, for south african and namibian people to eat the the antelope that are on their property and they kill them they eat them i mean let's talk about this a little bit because it's actually something i should have thought of before just now and it just came to me you know that's that's a pretty hot topic obviously over here in america is the hunting of mm-hmm. african species by americans or people i guess who they don't care if it's africans carrying killing animals but when you know, someone from here does it, it seems to cause quite an uproar. What, what do the people in these countries feel? Or what was your take on the situation? Well, the people that I was working with, our community partners that we worked with directly were, you know, obviously conservation minded. So they understood that it's necessary to hunt in order to maintain sort of this ecological balance. And they are pro hunting, especially you know, it's a different culture there than here. Um, if they're consuming it, they're not necessarily going to be trophy hunting. Um, but they also understand the importance of trophy hunting, um, for a lot of these communities, for a lot of these communities, there's programs in different Southern African countries that, um, basically the community gets the money from the hunter coming in, paying the license fee that money goes directly to the community where it helps prevent things like poaching. It also, you know, builds schools, it builds roads, it builds hospitals. It's, it's good for the communities that are, you know, poor otherwise. Yeah. I mean, I imagine if I didn't have a hospital or school, it'd be very nice to have one in my community. Right. And I I guess that's the thing too, is they don't think like, you know, from here, we look and the animals look exotic. If you're from there, they look a whole lot less exotic. You know, a deer might be more exotic to them or an elk, say, when they look this way. But to us, it's, you know, a little more commonplace. Yeah, definitely. And they look at these animals a lot differently than we do, obviously. They take more of a utilitarian uh, viewpoint 
than we would. Um, and they understand that, that those animals are used for meat. Um, the predator, um, the human predator conflict there between farmers and the, you know, lions or cheetahs or, um, leopards, like is a huge, you know, it's a huge thing. And, you know, farmers will actually, you know, they'll shoot a lion or a leopard or, or a cheetah if it's eating their sheep or their cows or their goats, because that's affecting their livelihood and their, you know, their source of income. So that's a big issue that, you know, is, is also being worked on over there. Um, and yeah. It, did you have a favorite country so far you visited? Oh man, that's a good question. I think that I really enjoyed Namibia because I got to work so closely with the people there. I was, uh, the, our community partners there were awesome. Got to form a relationship there and actually got to do something in Namibia that was uh, beneficial to, to current research in, you know, in conservation biology through these drones and using them to monitor wildlife. So I think that was my favorite part of that, uh, that experience there. But I really loved um, Ecuador, I think. Ecuador, as far as just a country to visit and uh, the, the diversity there between the landscape and just the people and the food and just everything, the culture, it was really, it was tell, really awesome. tell us a little bit about Ecuador. I've never been. I'd love to hear about Ecuador. So last summer I worked for a company called Broadreach that takes students on academic tre- treks. So we you know, take high school and college students on these trips and, and they learn you know, learn by doing experiential learning, right? And the the Ecuador trip was a medical Spanish trip. And basically the kids on these trips get to do academic things, but they also get to do some sort of adventure things. So we got to go rock climbing in the Andes. We got to go horseback riding in the Andes, but they also go to a Spanish school and, you know, they work with the community. They go to different um, organizations. They went to, uh, we went to an orphanage and they, they volunteered with the kids there for a day. But all the time they're, you know, interacting with the the local people in in the, the language. So they're learning Spanish by actually speaking it. And then they work at a sort of a rural medical clinic and they get to, you know, sort of experience the medical Spanish portion of it. And then they learn about the culture and the public health system in that country. So that was the trip. Um, you know, we traveled to the Andes and then we went to the beach. So we got to see a pretty wide variety of things in Ecuador, got to see a lot of the countryside. The Andes are, you know, one of the most beautiful places I've ever been. Um, but also the, the coast of Ecuador is amazing as well. So, and I imagine for this trip, you're going to have to be pretty physically fit. I would say, you know, the ocean that's, how many miles is that to get coast it's, to coast? It's about thirty five hundred nautical miles. That's a few. It's a couple. A few, you little know? bit, a little bit longer than the Cape Fear River. Yeah, a little bit longer than the Sunday drive. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what what kind of training are you and your team doing to so, prepare for this? Prior to actually purchasing a rower, we will, um, you know, be rowing on indoor rowers. Doing I I do and coach CrossFit, so I think that the general physical preparedness that that gives me is kind of a leg up on being able to do it a good head start but rowing this boat down the canoe as as or canoe down the cape fear was you know i think it was a good lead into kind of how that's going to go and kind of gaining an understanding of how to actually row on open water not open water but water period um 
but just, you know, generally rowing on an indoor rower, CrossFit and staying active, I think is, is going to be important as it gets closer, we'll probably be more structured in the rowing. And then once we actually purchase the rower, we'll go on trips actually out into the ocean off the coast of North Carolina, where we start to extend that time out. We'll start maybe a weekend trip, then a week long trip and, uh, you know, go from there. And will you have a support crew? Is there a plan for a support crew with this, or is you guys totally self-sufficient on it? So the the idea is to do an unsupported row. The I mean, we don't want to have a support crew if you know if we run into a certain like a situation that we can't continue, then we have to be rescued. That's what we have to do. But we're doing an unsupported row, so everything that we need for this trip will be on the boat. The water is we have a desalination pump, but we'll also have water, fresh water that we have to bring. And it's in case of emergency. So say you're halfway there, right? Furthest from Mm. either side. How close is the closest rescue? That's a, that's a good question. I mean, it could be a ways off. I mean, we're not far out of the shipping lanes. Um, not that a cargo ship is going to rescue us, but I think that, you know, as that Northern ocean route takes us, um, I'm not sure where halfway is in relation to Greenland, Iceland, but I, I don't think more than two days away from rescue. I don't think we'd ever be more That'd than be two, days. two days. It'd be a long two days. It'd be a long two days. That'd be a long two days. The the life raft. I mean, there's a life raft. Obviously, not the most comfortable situation, and you know, not something that we want to get ourselves into. But you know, you prep, you prepare for these things, and you prepare for the sort of the worst case scenario and right and plan for the best or hope for the best plan for the worst that's right yeah i mean especially with something like this because i mean if something goes wrong things that there are things that can go wrong on this trip that are you know potentially you're life dead. ending you're dead yeah. <laughs> not just trip ending but life ending so you know sort of mitigating those risks as much as possible and making them you know making it as safe as possible is obviously a priority and what is the expected weather to be like when you go so what we think is the north atlantic in the summertime is going to be okay i mean we we don't expect to be you know completely free of any storms i mean certainly there's the potential to run into storms but i mean we're we're hoping for decent weather and weather that we can row through and we'll, on these boats i've seen uh i think there's a documentary on a group of uh women rolling the Pacific, and I don't recall. Is there like a roof or anything that will be over your heads or you can put over it if it starts pouring, or are you just out there no matter what happens? While we're rowing, you're out there. You're on an open deck when you're rowing. There are berths for each person to, to sleep in, but while you're rowing, you're exposed to the elements, so especially in the North Atlantic. I mean, the the, the clothing is going to be uh, crucial. I mean, the, the gear that we have as far as keeping us dry and warm. What kind of, uh, I guess, that's a great question. What kind of clothing and all that kind of stuff do you wear during something like this? So, like, Gore-Tex, a Gore-Tex, you know, rain clothes, like, wet weather pants, wet weather jacket, you know, gloves are going to be essential just because of that salt spray and being wet all the time. You can imagine the, the wear on your hands. So, keeping your hands dry as possible and keeping as much salt off your skin as possible and sort of, you know keeping those things from ending your trip, you know, 
This sounds miserable. It should be a really I think good it'll time. Be, <laughs> I think it'll be a miserable experience, and that's that's why I want to do it. I yeah. If you had, let's actually, we don't need a time machine for this. Say you were to go down the road, right, and speak at the graduating class of Holland Head in 2018 speech. What would you say? What would your words of wisdom be to those kids graduating high school now? I would tell them not to wait to pursue their dreams. I think that it's really important that when you have the time, you seize the opportunity to do the things that are important to you because time is one thing that you can't get back. And I've, you know, been out of high school for, I guess it's 13 years. 13 years. years. Yeah, I did the math quietly over here earlier. (laughs) Complicated calculations going on. (laughs) Then I was like, wait, how long have I been out of high school for? 13 years. And I think you need to take advantage of the time that you have to do the things that you want to do and do the things that are important to you and do the things that are going to give your life purpose. Because if you don't do those things, you will look back and you will regret it. Let's talk about that purpose a little bit because I feel like myself when I graduated school and like I didn't know where to find purpose if you gave me a map what do you feel has helped you find purpose and cause in your life that's a that's a great question I think going directly in the military I think was actually you know it was sort of an accident it was sort of like a genius by accident right like it was the best thing for me in that it gave me this time, you know, doing something that was, you know, dangerous, certainly, but also gave me the ability to think about what I wanted to do and, and think about what I didn't want to do and, and sort of pursue those things that are going to make me happy. So I think that was the first thing. Um, and then after the military, going to going to school and going to college and having that appreciation for college and knowing that that's what I actually wanted to do. And I was pursuing something that I was wanting to do. That gave me a little bit more purpose. And now that I'm learning and having these experiences in other countries, it's given me more purpose and kind of kind of steered my life more towards doing things that are important to me. And then looking back on the time, you know, the 13 years since I've graduated high school and saying like, Am I happy with what I've done in this time? Am I happy with what I've done in the past 13 years? And I think for the, for the majority of those things, I can say yes. Certainly, there's you know every I've made mistakes in my life, but um, learning from them, I think, is is the most important thing. If you were to make like a short list of what makes you happy these days, what what, what would you have on that list? Wow. Uh, I think these adventures really make me happy, like these experiences. So I would say experiences make me happy, but experiences that I can learn from and experiences that I can grow from. So I think that's kind of why I seek out these like painful experiences because I have it in my head that you can't grow without pain. I would agree. And I think you need to hurt. I would agree. I think there needs to be a little pain. Like if it's if it's easy, you're not doing it right. Joy, so if you're joy just, has to be juxtaposed. Right. We were we were talking briefly before this, and we were talking about kind of coasting, right, and how it's really easy to just coast. And I think that it doesn't take any effort to be at the bottom. It takes no effort, right? And if you're if it's easy, then you're probably not putting in enough effort. So 
I think, you know, I think that it's important to me to, to seek out these challenging situations, whether it's in school, whether it's in fitness, whether it's in, you know, the, the career that I eventually wind up pursuing, whatever it is, I think it needs to be a challenging experience. You know, I can look back at my life and tell you that any points I've coasted are not points I look back and I tell stories about or I'm particularly proud of. No. I probably don't even talk about if I remember Why, them. Right, because you probably don't remember them. <laughs> Why and I would think, you, right? <laughs> I think, like, that brings me back to this Cape Fear experience that I had last weekend. It was, I mean, it was one of the more difficult physical and mental things that I've done in the past, you know, past few years, certainly. It was super challenging and i'll definitely remember it because of that if it was easy if we just had really good current and we just rode down the river and it was the easiest thing we've ever done like it's not that's not why you do those things you do those things to suffer and to to grow so so what were the takeaways from rowing it what did you learn first and foremost if i were to write the definitive guide to the cape fear river don't do it no uh <laughs> you should have a seat that is comfortable because if you aren't comfortable on your seat, then you're not, you're just going to have a miserable experience and unnecessarily miserable experience at that. So takeaways, definitely that, um, as far as building the boat, I mean, I think we did a pretty good job for what we had with our design. Um, you know, maybe we had the planning, we planned pretty well. I mean, we went and investigated where we were going to do our portages. I think we underestimated how difficult they were going to be. Um, but I think we learned that we can actually do this ocean row. I think we learned that, you know, it's something that we want to do. It's, it's not impossible. It's certainly a difficult thing, but it's not impossible and we can do it. That's what we, that's a big takeaway. Are there any goals in your lifetime you hope to accomplish outside of this row? Uh, Absolutely. I mean, I definitely want to, you know, finish my degree at NC State. I think that'd be my, I think that'd be my short-term goal is finishing my degree. And while I'm finishing my degree, kind of gearing up for this row, but then whether I pursue a master's degree or not, I'd like to pursue a career in, in conservation biology and, and do something that has purpose and that has sort of an impact on, on the future of conservation and kind of gives sort of a, I don't know, beneficial. Where, if you had a little crystal ball, right, and you were to look into it, <laughs> where, do you, um, where do you think you'd be if, say, you skipped the Army and went college first? That's, a, that's something that I, I think about from time to time. And I, I think that I would still be here in upstate New York. And I think that there's a lot to be said for being here in upstate New York. It's one of my favorite places on the face of the earth. And I, this will always be home. Um, but I think I would be working here in upstate New York without a degree. Coasting. I don't think I would have gotten uh, coasting. I don't think I would have gone to college I, or I, maybe I would have gone to college and just not finished. I didn't have the mindset. I didn't have the purpose. I didn't have the drive. I didn't have any sort of vision about what I wanted to do. And I think that for me particularly, if I don't have that vision, I can't just put my head down and go if I don't know what I'm going towards. I need to have a goal. I need to have an outcome. Because if I'm not passionate about something, I'm probably not going to do it as well as I could. I think that like something I heard somewhere was if you want to do something, you will do it well. And that resonated with me and it stuck with me. And I firmly believe that if you 
want to do something, you will do it well. I would second that because I know when I don't want to do something, it might, well, it might not get done, first of all, but it's probably not done that well. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, in school as well. I mean, in school particularly. Let's talk about school a little bit because this is no secret that my opinion of school is it does not prepare you for actual life of happiness. And when I say a life of happiness, I'm also equating happiness comes from struggle, strife, and getting through difficult things. It, it, it's a one-size-doesn't-fit-all approach. And I certainly felt like it did not fit me, and it didn't do anything to really help me find something that would fit what I was meant to do. Well, I think that's really common. I mean, I don't think that's, I don't think that's an exception. I think a lot of people go to school. No, I, I think it is. I think it is the uh, rule more than the exception. I think there's more people on this side of the fence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. I, so we agree. Yeah. No, okay, I'm pretty okay. sure we agree because I remember you in high school. So <laughs> <laughs> no vision, <laughs> but it's, it's interesting that I, I feel like there's a lot of ways that certain classes or things can be taken out and certain things should be put in place. I agree with you. I don't have that much to say about high school because I don't remember it as much. And that's not, <laughs> not that's, that's, a that's good just thing. because it was so long ago. Remember, you not. don't remember things that you coasted through. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, I, I can say about college, like I used to have that perspective going into college. I was like, God, like, why do I have to learn organic chemistry? Like, this is stupid. And draw shapes on papers and arrows, and, you know? Like, why do I have to learn this? Well, it teaches you how to solve problems. I think that, more than anything, is it teaches you how to show, solve problems, but it also shows that you have the dedication to push through these difficult things. And, and, here's, and here's kind of how I tie it together, is I didn't find that kind of purpose and drive and problem-solving you're talking about until I got to college, and I would meet two professors, uh, Dr. Leno Mbaga, who recently passed away. But he was a fantastic, fantastic professor. He was from, actually from Kenya and super interesting guy. And he taught this wood furniture production class where you learn to make furniture. He also did adhesives and some other classes I took. And then there was one, Wayne Hausnick, who he was at one point, I think the president of Morrisville uh, of the school. And he taught a class on sawmill where you actually operate a sawmill in a wood science class and these other classes and that was when i was like whoa i'm really interested in these things in these classes and building and creating and planning and mapping this out and, and really having to struggle to work things out but it's that lab environment that hands-on learning that i think a lot of high schools lack and that's what i needed in to to find some purpose to find like holy shit this just blew my mind that I'm in school, I'm enjoying school, and I'm working hard to get places. Now I'd go to economics class, and it wouldn't be so good. But snooze fest, yeah. <laughs> snooze fest, exactly. But you get out there and you find that purpose, and all of a sudden things will start kind of clicking for you because you you now know what it looks like. Right, and I think like experiential learning, I think is crucial. I mean, that's working with Broadreach last summer and, and being able to have that experience alongside the students that that we were teaching seeing the growth that came from that with them because yeah there's struggle there's you know all of this hands-on learning 
that takes place. And I think that's hugely important. And the same goes for my study abroad in, in Namibia with the drones, like learning from that. And then any lab setting where you're actually doing something hands-on is going, you're going to have more of a lasting impact than, um, just sitting and staring at a whiteboard <laughs> or a projector or whatever it is, listening to somebody talk about their profession basically for 50 minutes at a time, that doesn't really, that doesn't really last. It, no. And I'm almost forgetting as I'm learning sometimes. Yeah. If people want to follow along with this journey or they say someone's listening they're like I'm ahead of a company I'd like a little recognition how can they get a hold of you how can they follow along on this so my email is James Ploss p-l-o-s-s at gmail.com instagram jn plos 85 and uh, we're gonna you know keep posting things as uh, along you can see their homemade path. boat you can see the homemade <laughs> boat or half homemade, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I haven't put up the, I haven't put up the pictures from the Cape Fear trip yet, but they're uh, they're going up soon. That's good. Content is king. Uh, thank you, James. In closing, is there anything you'd like to add? Words of wisdom out there for those listening. I got nothing. No. All right. I'm gonna go end with this. Wing it. Wing it. That's <laughs> for, right. For the Adventurous Gentleman Podcast, get out there and wing it. <laughs> <laughs>